I'm Sam Tracy. And I'm Rochelle Young. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun in the process. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll be starting off today's episode with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a forecast for some big days of action that are coming up. Then, after a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, we'll be talking about the science of cocaine in the second installment of August's Drug of the Month. Then, next up is our roundtable discussion on the student movement to end the war on drugs with guests Betty Aldworth, Executive Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and Chris Crane, President of Forefront Ventures and a previous Executive Director of SSDP. And, as always, we'll wrap it up with our calls to action because while learning about drugs and drug policy is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if we're not using that knowledge to improve the world. So thanks for joining us for Episode 6 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Rochelle and I will discuss a few big drug-related stories from this week and then let you know about a couple of things to look forward to in the coming weeks. So, uh, Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first story? Sure. Our first story this week comes from the world of pharmaceuticals. So this Thursday, the Food and Drug Administration announced that it had approved limited uses of the powerful opioid painkiller OxyContin for pediatric patients as young as 11 years old. So for those who aren't familiar, OxyContin is a long-release version of oxycodone, which is an opioid prescribed to treat moderate to severe chronic pain. Because oxycodone can create feelings of euphoria along with its intended pain relief effects and is highly addictive, OxyContin is actually one of the most commonly abused pharmaceutical drugs in the United States right now. Um, According to a spokesperson for the FDA, Unlike with adults who are prescribed the medicine, children, um, in order to receive an OxyContin prescription, must already have shown that they can handle the drug by tolerating a minimum dose equal to 20 milligrams of oxycodone for five consecutive days before they're officially prescribed. So this is a safeguard measure that the FDA has put in place uh, for pediatric patients uh, to receive OxyContin. And currently, the only other opioid that is approved for children's use is the Duragesic patch, which releases Interesting. fentanyl. Yeah, I had heard a little bit about this. And I mean, my first reaction, of course, is that it's kind of insane to be uh, prescribing children these really strong opiates. But at the same time, I, I must admit that obviously I'm not a doctor. So it's good at least to hear that they have this, I guess, mini prescription done beforehand to make sure that they can... <laughs> Can handle it, but I mean that just seems like kind of a strange thing to do. Yeah, I mean I have a lot of empathy for children who are you know so young and already suffering from these chronic and very severe debilitating uh, medical conditions. But first and foremost, because of the work I've done with so many children with epileptic seizures who could access cannabis, which would relieve their symptoms. So I understand that sometimes you do need to go to extremes um, to be able to treat your medical condition, even when you're a very young child. But it just makes me question. How can the FDA be so ready to prescribe this drug that has been proven to be extremely addictive with a high potential for abuse, and yet 
be so reticent to look even further into cannabis as a med- as a viable medical treatment, um, which really hasn't shown this level of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. I mean, it's one thing I, I try not to demonize opiates too much because they, they can be incredibly addictive and dangerous, but they do help a lot of people. But it is just insane to compare this to the, the situation with medical marijuana, where so many states only allow it for, say, people over 18 uh, and don't even allow children to, to be using it. Yeah. Uh, let alone the fact that as we've discussed on a previous episode, I believe, um, how the current Overprescription of opioids is leading to the current rise in heroin use. Um, so lots to think about here. Yeah, that feeds in quite well to our next one, since uh, this one is actually a- about a response to heroin abuse. So last week here in Massachusetts, uh, a governor's counselor publicly called for the state to decriminalize heroin and have the government take over and expand methadone clinics. So a little bit of background for people outside of Massachusetts or even ones inside, because this is kind of strange. We have this really weird position of governor's counselor. Uh, Its main role is just to advise the governor. uh, And it has a few other things like approving judicial nominees. Uh, But one of these counselors, his name is Robert Jubinville, who's a criminal defense attorney in the state. He wrote this public letter to the governor's office calling for heroin decriminalization as as a kind of a new approach to fight against the opiate overdose crisis. Oh, wow. That's a very uh, bold step, I think, from an elected official. I haven't heard anyone taking that position before. So do you know what kind of support or response has come so far from either Massachusetts voters or, or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, somewhat predictably, there were some law enforcement people and some substance abuse prevention folks who uh, kind of balked at it and said, oh, this isn't the right approach. We need to just do more more treatment and more prevention. But <laughs> it's just crazy to me because they don't you, you can still have treatment and prevention. And I mean, essentially, this is all about treatment because uh, part of the entire point of decriminalization is to reduce the stigma and make it so that people are actually willing to come out and say, I, I'm struggling with addiction and I need help rather than uh, worrying about getting thrown in prison. And aside from those uh, kind of predictable naysayers, there's actually been a, a decent amount of support for it. And I mean, as far as uh, from the general public goes, uh, from some old polling, uh, Massachusetts voters seem like they actually would support this kind of broad concept. Uh, A recent poll, I think, from earlier this year said that 64 percent of folks in mass say drug abuse is a health issue and not a criminal one. And then 83 percent prefer sending drug users to treatment instead of prison. So I feel like if this was actually, you know, brought to a public vote that we'd actually have a lot of support for it. Yeah, and it's great to see that the the broader public perception of heroin um, addiction or abuse is finally being treated as a health problem instead of a criminal justice or crime problem. Um, And there's actually been a really good piece that was written recently that was published in the Marshall Project um, and republished in The Atlantic for anyone who's interested in reading further about how um, this pivot in public perception really happened when the heroin epidemic really reached uh, suburban white communities, um, because we know that for a long time, um, African Americans in urban communities have been uh, struggling with the heroin epidemic, and um, the response traditionally has been to demonize and punish instead. So um, it's great to see that that public perception is coming in line with more science-based solutions and health-based solutions, but it's unfortunate that we continue to see this uh, this racial disparity in treatment. Um, and so for our next story, um, this one's about a report that reveals how extensive the use of military gear is in the war on drugs. 
So Mother Jones, the investigative magazine, recently reviewed requests to the Pentagon for armored tactical vehicles from more than 450 local police departments nationwide. And these requests include uh, such vehicles as like mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles or MRAPs, um, which you may have seen in the news. They're like these huge 14-ton tank-looking trucks with armored hulls and tiny blast-proof windows. Um, there are like pictures of them during the, the Ferguson, uh, Ferguson protest specifically. But um, what this report by Mother Jones found is that while in public and to the mainstream media, these requests for armored vehicles and military equipment are often justified as necessary for combating like terrorist threats and hostage situations and active shootouts. In reality, the single most cited reason, reason for requesting um, this equipment from the Pentagon was for drug enforcement. A whole quarter of the military requests projected that the armored vehicles would be used for fighting the war on drugs, which I guess they're taking uh, literally. And um, one out of six departments that were reviewed said that they would be using the vehicles simply to serve search or arrest warrants on individuals who had not yet been convicted of a crime. Um, so they're using these like huge tank like things just to go to people's houses and tell them that there there's like probable cause that they may have committed a crime. So only 8% of the reports uh, or the quest mentioned the possibility of barricaded gunmen and a handful even mentioned the possibility of terrorist threats that's so surprising because i mean i feel like we had all known that this is what it's being used for all of the time but i at least imagined that their justification was more for the terrorism and the you know the lone gunman sort of thing and uh it's surprising to see that even in their request that they are pretty blatantly saying oh yeah we're going to be using this to lock up marijuana users and fight the drug war it just illustrates the very stark difference between how um like enforcement agencies communicate between themselves when they are talking about like what their equipment is actually going to be used for in reality versus what they are telling not only the public and the media but what they're telling our lawmakers too when our lawmakers you know may question why so many local police need uh, military-grade equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like they really are misleading the public, and this leads to so many just crazy excesses. I mean, here in Mass, there's a state or there's a town called Rioboth that I think has 14,000 people in it and got an MRAP, uh, which is just, there's really no reason whether, uh, you know, drug arrests or terrorism or anything for them to have this, but it leads to these crazy kinds of excesses. One of the one of the craziest um, requests that I saw in reading this report was um, a Delaware police chief um, asked for a Lenco Bearcat, which I guess is an armored personal carrier with blast resistant floors and an optional gun turret just to, quote unquote, guard a 200 acre beach town. Yeah. So I don't know what that beach town has that, you know, terrorists are coming for it, but um, maybe choose not to vacation there. <laughs> absolutely uh, so for our next story is actually luckily we have a bit more of a positive one uh, so at their annual meeting in Seattle the National Conference of State Legislatures which is this nonpartisan organization that brings together state lawmakers from all over the country uh, they approved a resolution calling for Congress to let states decide their own marijuana policies so this resolution which was sponsored by New Hampshire State Representative Rennie Cushing part of it reads uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures believes that federal laws, including the Controlled Substances Act, should be amended to explicitly allow states to set their own marijuana and hemp policies without federal interference and urges the administration not to undermine state marijuana and hemp policies. 
And the even more awesome thing about this is that it needed a super majority of at least 75% to pass. And it was such a blowout victory that they just passed it on a simple voice vote and didn't even need to do roll call. And so, Rochelle, I know that you had actually worked on this issue a little bit when you were at the Marijuana Policy Project, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That So last at last year's NCSL was the first time we kind of introduced this resolution and took the temperature on whether or not we would be able to pass something like this. Um, and seeing that we needed a supermajority um, was a little discouraging, especially since we hadn't put in a lot of groundwork yet um, at the 2014 NCSL. But um, I think this is actually really, really clever on, on the part of state rep Rennie Cushing, because even though like a lot of states differ on what exactly the right marijuana policy should be, it's totally a bipartisan supported issue that states should con- that, that states' rights should take precedence on this particular topic. And to go to the conference of state legislatures and ask them, would you like more control over your own policies, is pretty intuitive, especially when a lot of them that are traditionally more conservative still have hemp programs in place. And so to encompass both um, medical and recreational uses of marijuana, as well as hemp policies into this resolution, I think is what created so much support. Yeah, that is fantastic. And I I do hope that in future years that they expand this even a little bit more just to include states' rights for all sorts of drug policies, since this one is focused very, very individually on marijuana and hemp. Well, maybe that's a project we can take on in the future, Sam. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I wonder if it's going to be in Seattle next year. I'd like to visit again. That was fun. (laughs) And one other thing that was uh, actually kind of nice about this, too, is that uh, so for our listeners who aren't familiar, there's a group out there called Project Sam. Uh, that's pretty much the leading anti-marijuana legalization group out Not there. Not affiliated to and this, Sam, I'm right? on there. Unaffiliated, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they stole my name, and that's why I have this grudge. <laughs> but they were actually uh, present at this, uh, the, at this conference, and were sending a lot of updates out to their email list, and were really pumping themselves up. But it was actually, I'm sure that they were fighting this tooth and nail, and it was really good to see that they had pretty much zero success there. So that's a, a nice thing to see with the directions of where things are Hooray! going. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> proud to see my former colleagues at MPP getting this done. I'm super proud of them. Yeah, totally rocking it. Um, So moving on to our weekly forecast. So my first forecast is for um, an event that's coming up about a month away, but I wanted to give you guys time to prepare in case you wanted to take part. Um, So on September 20th, it's the Psilocybin Day of Action, and it's a day of coordinated action nationwide organized by the 920 Coalition, which is meant to educate the public about recent medical research involving psilocybin, or um, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So the coalition is being led by Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and a number of SSDP chapters across the country are hosting events on their campuses, including in California, New York, Texas, and Virginia. And one of the speakers announced so far will be Ingmar Borgman, who is a researcher at Columbia University, and in an investigator at MAPS, um, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So if you'd like to find out more about these events and whether one is happening near you, you can check out the Facebook event, uh, Psilocybin 920 Coordinated Day of Action, or their website, which is 920coalition.org. And if you're an SSDP chapter leader and would like to organize a Psilocybin Day of Action event on your campus, you can talk to your outreach coordinator. Awesome. And so for mine, I've actually got another big uh, day of action. This one's coming up on August 31st, which is two weeks from tomorrow, if you're listening to this episode, the day that it airs. And so this one is International Overdose Awareness Day. 
And this global event has been held every year since 2001, and it aims to raise awareness of overdose and reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths, which is incredibly important. And so it acknowledges the grief felt by families and friends remembering those who have met with death or permanent injury as a result of drug overdose. And there's at least 45 events planned all over the world and probably more since, uh, since we wrote this. And uh, we'd like to highlight a vigil being planned uh, for Huntington Beach Pier in California, uh, which is Sunday on August 30th, the day before the Day of Action on the weekend, uh, since this was sent to us by Joseph Pettit, who's an intern with the Drug Policy Alliance and a, and a listener of the podcast. So if you're in that area, please check it out. And if you're anywhere else, you can go to overdoseday.com uh, to see what events are near you. And uh, one other thing is that you're also encouraged to wear silver on that day to show your support wherever you are. And uh, if you can't make it to any events, or even if you can, you can tweet with the hashtag OD15 for Overdose Day 2015. Awesome. Well, that's been our weekly news and forecast. And while we're always following news about the drug war, there's so much happening that it's hard to keep track of it all. So if you see a good news story or hear about an upcoming event that you'd like us to know about, send it to us on social media or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com, and we may include it in next week's show. Now for a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, also known as LEAP, is an international educational nonprofit organization made up of current and former members of law enforcement who believe that existing drug policies have failed. LEAP believes the current policies of prohibition have failed and continue to fail to effectively address drug abuse, juvenile drug use, addiction, and the crimes created by criminal control of illicit drug sales. LEAP envisions a world in which drug policies work for the benefit of society and keep our communities safer. They believe that a system of legalization and regulation would better protect human rights, reduce crime and disease, reduce addiction, use tax dollars more efficiently, and restore the public's respect and trust in law enforcement. Our very first guest on This Week in Drugs was LEAP Executive Director Neil Franklin, and we love LEAP very much. To find out more about law enforcement against prohibition, visit their website at leap.cc. That's L-E-A-P dot C-C. it's time for our drug of the month, which for August is cocaine. In this, our second installment, we'll be talking about the science of cocaine, how it interacts with your brain, its effects in the short and long term, some of its side effects, and medical uses. So as we explained last week, cocaine is typically used in powder form and snorted, though it can also be injected or turned into crack and smoked. Each of these methods of administration have slightly different effects, but all forms act as a strong stimulant. When you snort cocaine, it coats the inside of your nose and is absorbed through the mucous membranes where it travels into your bloodstream. Here, it acts by inhibiting the reuptake of three major neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Since they can't be reabsorbed into their senders like they normally would, this leads to higher concentrations of these three things in the brain, causing cocaine's characteristic high. 
The effects that cocaine users are seeking are feelings of alertness, confidence, and euphoria, which is kind of reflected in the pop culture with scenes of users talking incredibly fast and coming up with big, out-there ideas and plans. The high from snorting cocaine comes on gradually and typically peaks at around 15 to 30 minutes in, lasting for about an hour total. And since injecting cocaine or smoking crack gets it into your bloodstream much more quickly than snorting it, with less of it being lost so there's more bioavailability, their effects are felt almost immediately, but it also wears off a lot faster, usually lasting somewhere between 5 to 10 minutes. Some of its other effects are a sudden increase in heart rate, blood pressure, and breathing. Higher frequent doses have caused seizures, stroke, strokes, or heart attacks in some people. And as with any stimulant drug, it can also be, lead to sleep deprivation and insomnia, which can impair cognition and put you in a bad mood. After using cocaine, people can get depressed, agitated, anxious, or paranoid, and these effects can last for hours or even days in high doses. And this is because of the lack of the normal amounts of serotonin and dopamine that are usually in your brain, uh, since your body pretty much needs time to recharge afterwards. And cocaine does have a pretty high addictive potential. According to the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Science, 17% of people who try cocaine will become dependent on it, slightly more than alcohol's 15%, but a substantial amount less than heroin's 23%. So while it is addictive, it doesn't automatically hook everyone who tries it as some drug warriors try to make it seem, which makes a lot of sense since 16% of Americans have admitted to trying cocaine which makes it the second most popular illegal drug after marijuana, and we obviously don't have 16% of the population currently addicted to it. And so there's also some risk of fatal overdose when using cocaine. In experiments with mice, the median lethal dose, or LD50, came in at 91 milligrams per kilogram of weight. A meta-study by Claremont University found the typical lethal dose for humans to be about 1,200 milligrams, and since the usual recreational dose is 80 milligrams, this gives it a safety ratio of 15, meaning it takes 15 normal doses to kill you. This means it's easier to overdose on alcohol, whose ratio is 10, and slightly safer than MDMA, whose safety ratio is 16. However, because cocaine is really short-acting and builds up a, a tolerance pretty quickly, this can lead to people using too much or too often if they're trying to make the effects stretch over a long period of time. And while it is a popular recreational drug, cocaine does also have some medical uses. In the U.S., it's a Schedule II drug, meaning that it has a high potential for abuse and currently accepted medical use and treatment. So historically, it was widely used as a local anesthetic for nose or eye surgery, since it both numbs you and is also a vasoconstrictor, so it reduces bleeding and is really helpful for delicate procedures like that. It used to be much more popular in the U.S., but has mostly been replaced by synthetic painkillers like benzocaine nowadays. But in Australia, it's still prescribed for use as a local anesthetic for conditions like mouth or lung ulcers, again in uh, much more sensitive areas. And in South America, unprocessed coca leaves are also used to combat altitude sickness or used as a mild stimulant, pretty much equivalent to a cup of coffee. And so that's been the science section of our drug of the month, cocaine. Tune in next week to hear Rochelle explain the history and how social attitudes around cocaine have evolved over time. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion. This week, we're lucky to have two guest experts on, both of whom Sam and I know quite well from our work with Students for Sensible Drug Policy, um, a group which we've mentioned several times on past episodes. 
Our first guest is Betty Aldworth, current executive director of SSDP and the former deputy director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Hi, Betty. Hey, Rochelle. Thanks for having me on. Howdy, Betty. And uh, so we've also got Chris Crane, who's the president of Forefront Ventures and also a former executive director of SSDP. And uh, so those who have listened to our past episodes and paid close attention might remember that I also work at Forefront Ventures. So full disclosure, Chris is my boss uh, for my day job, and we work together in our in uh, Boston. So thanks for coming on, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'll try not to fault you for uh, recording this during work hours, Sam. <laughs> so since everyone in this conversation has had a lot of experience in both the student movement to hand the war on drugs, as well as in the emerging marijuana industry, we wanted to focus our discussion today on both of those topics and how they overlap, uh, specifically going over the history of SSDP, what it's accomplished over the years, and the role young people are playing in the world of legal marijuana today. So Chris, you've been with SSDP since the very beginning when you were a student yourself. Can you give our listeners a bit of a background on the origins of SSDP and how it grew while you were the executive director? Sure. So we, we started SSDP in 1998, um, and it, it, it sort of started as an offshoot of uh, DRCNet, uh, StopTheDrugWar.org, uh, which became StopTheDrugWar.org, um, and a project that they had uh, early on called, it was called UNet. Um, and really, this was something that, that Dave Borden, uh, who's still there, and, and Adam Smith, who uh, those are your listeners who listen to Marijuana Today may be familiar with. He's a regular uh, there. Uh, they had started collecting .edu email addresses in the mid-1990s um, and put together essentially a listserv where students who were interested in drug policy reform could talk to one another. This was, this was relatively new um, uh, technology at, the, at this point, uh, almost, almost 20 years ago. And so you had students on a, on a handful of college campuses, uh, the, the first really being the Rochester Institute of Technology, where uh, Shea Gunther, um, uh, who uh, also Marijuana Today uh, uh, producer and, and, and now Forefront employee, um, uh, was the first ever SSD peer, um, uh, started the, I think it was the Rochester, I think they're originally called the Rochester Cannabis Coalition, if I recall correctly. Um, and uh, uh, he and then Chris Lotlikar, um, uh joined with him at, at that chapter and uh, they started talking with, uh, with with students around the country um, and decided to adopt a new name and call it Students for Sensible Drug Policy and, and sort of unite um, these, these these kids who had been working on ending the drug war on their own campuses um, uh, you know, to unite them under one under one banner. And so DRCNet uh, provided a desk at their office. Uh, uh, Chris Lotlikar moved up and became our first national director. Um, and we started organizing students. We had five chapters at that point. I was uh, I was an underclassman at American University, so I wasn't really in the leadership at the time uh, that this was starting up. But I was a chapter member at one of these first uh, five chapters uh, at, at American. Um, and then it, and then it kind of grew from there. I mean, over over the course of the next few years, uh, we incorporated into an, uh, into a real uh, 501c3 nonprofit and a 501c4 lobbying arm followed shortly thereafter. We hired a guy named Sean Heller, um, who had been uh, chapter leader at George Washington University, came on as our first paid executive director um, uh, with a real board of directors overseeing his work and, um, you know, grew very rapidly. In the early days, we grew a lot on uh, some 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 early media. It was this was all really around the the HEA uh, drug provision, which is the uh, provision of the Higher Education Act that denies 
federal financial aid to students with drug convictions. And that was really what galvanized the student movement in the late 1990s. And so we had chapters around the country that were passing resolutions in their student government calling on Congress to repeal this penalty um, or this, this provision of the Higher Education Act. Um, and uh, and and that got covered by Rolling Stone magazine, for example, did a huge piece on uh, students for sensible drug policy, calling us the next anti-war movement. And, and we saw our, our chapter numbers swell uh, pretty dramatically from there. Um, you know, all the while you ask about my tenure, I mean, all the while dur during most of these years, I was actually working for normal in D.C. And, and I was hired back at SSDP uh, in uh, January 2006 to take over as executive director. And, and this was sort of a transitional period in the organization's history where it was it was clear when I started that we were about to uh, dismantle HEA, thanks in part, not in part, thanks thanks mostly to the work of my predecessors, you know, folks like Sean Heller and Dowell Rogers and Scarlett Swordlow, who preceded me as the exec, as executive director. Um, and so we started focusing on, uh, on issues outside of HEA, uh, things like uh, uh, student drug testing, uh, you know, drug testing uh, high school students, um, uh, and 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 really a big focus on what we call the campus change campaign, which I think is 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 sort of morphed into a, a large part of what the organization focuses on today. And Betty can really talk about about that. But the idea was to to train young people to change campus drug policies, and in doing so, you would be enacting good policies on campuses. And the biggest and most successful of these were Good Samaritan policies. Um, uh, but you also were training students to you know, write letters to the editor and lobby their student governments and run for student government and sort of do all of the things that you would do in a, you know, sort of a quote unquote grown up lobbying campaign, right? If you're trying to change a law at your city, uh, in your city government, your state government, you would sort of do all of these things. And so these students would come out well trained to, um, uh, to be the next generation of, of reformers. And, and that was a really successful campaign. And it's led to you know, much of what the organization is working on today being sort of the, the, the foot soldiers of the, of the movement and, and, and the ground troops in, in many of these initiatives that are uh, successfully you know, changing particularly cannabis policy across the United States. Yeah, thank you for that uh, that great history, Chris. And, and it is completely true of the uh, just the usefulness of all of those skills that SSDP teaches uh, all, all of its student members in terms of both using them to apply to fixing their campus drug policies, but just those hard skills that you can then apply to any other sort of political campaign too. And it was definitely very transformational for me, and I know for Rochelle too, in her time as a as a college student, in which uh, using that to run for student government, and uh, I think both of us were both quite involved in that. And uh, it was interesting because I think both of our times at SSDP were actually in between uh, your tenure as ED, Chris, uh, and then uh, right ended pretty much right before Betty started. Because Betty, you had begun. Uh, at the beginning of 2014. So you've been running SSDP for about a year and a half now, right? Yep. February of 2014, I started the best job in all of drug policy reform. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. so for the last 18 months, we've been, uh, I think, perhaps um, uh, rivaling the growth of the early 2000s around here. Uh, we've expanded our staff. Uh, we've doubled our staff, in fact. Um, our chapters are mm -hmm. tremendously more effective now, and they are doing really exceptional work out on campuses. I'm so excited about what's coming for the next year. But, um, you know, Chris is right. A lot of the work that we're doing now is based on those campus change campaigns and the idea that if we can train students on campus to be great community organizers, to be heavily engaged in, 
you know, making their campus a better place, um, then they will, you know, graduate and continue to work on making the world a better place, especially as it relates to drug policy reform. So we know that uh, students are getting so involved in their local, not just their their school's uh, policies, but their local political campaigns too. Uh, plenty of chapters are coming online now, rallying around um, the upcoming marijuana legalization ballot initiatives that are um, expected to be introduced in a number of states. What are some of the highlights from the past year, Betty, that um, have really stood out to you in your in your first year and a half as executive director? So specific to marijuana-related um, issues and initiatives, one and it of, doesn't have to be marijuana specific sure. to marijuana-related. <laughs> we we try to avoid being too much specific to marijuana. Yeah, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. be, because yeah, there are so many other important <laughs> issues for people to focus on. Um, but uh, one mm-hmm. of the one of the interesting things that we saw um, was the into the 2014-15 school year was. Uh, the tremendous success of the campus campaign. And this is um, uh, the the name that we've given to our efforts related to um, initiatives and other specific pieces of legislation. So in 2014, we had extra staffers on the ground in Florida and D.C. to really work on youth voter education and get out the vote drives. This was born out of some of our efforts from uh, 2012 in Colorado, where we made 18,000 voter contacts and were heavily engaged in the campaign there, but found that um, students, you know, were not as um, engaged as they could have been because they didn't have the kind of direct staff support that they needed to really be making the kind of impact that I knew was possible from my work on that campaign as advocacy director there. So we made an investment in staff, we brought some folks on board to help, and then they also worked on carefully cultivated transition activities after the election. So not only did we dramatically increase our impact in the 2014 marijuana-related campaigns with lots and lots of uh, phone calls made and individual one-on-one in-person voter contacts, I think we had 41,000 total voter contacts, which was amazing. But... We also have now on the ground in these places active chapters who are really heavily engaged in um, a a variety of different pieces of work. In D.C. alone, we've had a couple of students elected to their student governments. Um, We have uh, more than half of our chapters in both D.C. and Florida uh, proposing new campus policies. And in Florida, of course, they're gearing up for 2016. So we're expanding the program in 2016 based on the lessons we learned in 2014. And I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing what we do there. Um, We've also just really been turning back to questions of what is it that SSDP does that is most important? Um, You know, how do we how do we think about our work and how do we engage students in um, you know, along meaningful pathways of development, right? So it's great if you're working on uh, a piece of policy change, but we're really trying to to draw out those most important um, uh, pieces of, of that work and the lessons that are learned while doing it so that we are able to bring in more students and engage them more effectively. So, you know, highlighting the work of 
um, you know, particularly exemplary ad, ad advocates on campus, um, sharing the things that, that made their work successful, um, you know, bringing people together in, in new ways online and in person. We had in this past year, uh, I believe, six regional conferences, all of which were the biggest uh, for their region in history. So we've got you know, students coming together multiple times a year to work on, on um, to do learning together. Um, and, and we're finding that this greater investment in uh, student activity and in, in guiding students through the support of their outreach coordinators who make up the bulk of our staff here at SSDP has really proven um, effective in terms of, of creating greater change. Great, thank you. That's really exciting to just hear about all of the the work that's been going on since uh, since I left the board before, and just how much it's still been growing, which is fantastic. And so I was wondering also, just talking about the different kind of competitive advantages of SSDP over other organizations. I know something that we've been involved with for a long time had been on uh, on the United Nations side of things, and had been. Uh, for years, I think we were the only drug policy nonprofit that had official consultative status with them. And I know that you've really been stepping up the work on the UN side of stuff. And I saw that there's even a, uh, a model UN coming up at the next conference. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the international side of things. Sure. Um, SSDP has had international chapters for a good number of years. Um, and we're taking kind of a new approach to that work now. Um, I had the honor of being able to attend the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna, um, which is an annual gathering of, of countries and NGOs working on the world drug control problem. Um, and uh, while I was there, really saw the power of um, you know trying to do more extensive work in the international space. Um, first, of course, it's tremendously important when we're talking about uh, you know drug policy to remember that this is a global problem that was is has been borne by and supported primarily by the United States, uh, one of the largest drug consuming countries. Um, so we are, you know, I, I feel, uh, as do many of uh, my colleagues in the global space, feel that um, you know the U.S. is really responsible. Uh, for most of the global destruction that has been wrought by the war on drugs, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead and, you know, spraying uh, poisons all over Latin America and, uh, you know, countries like Indonesia um, still to this day enacting the death penalty for, uh, drug, for minor drug offenses. Uh, these are are problems created by us and we have a responsibility to fix them. We also need to make sure that students, uh, young people who are interested in, in drug policy are well educated on these issues and have a really deep understanding of what the impacts of drug policy are for their peers around the world. So because those things are so important, we've decided to really step up our efforts this year in advance of the UN General Assembly, Spe Assembly Special Session on Drugs. Uh, say that three times fast. Um, but the, the, it's referred to as UNGAS, and this is a, a meeting that happens every approximately every 20 years. Latin America has requested that it, the schedule be moved up to 2016. And so in April... Uh, the, there, this major meeting where uh, the drug control treaties are evaluated and, and looked at will be happening in New York. 
And we are going to have uh, do our best to really elevate the youth voice around global drug control issues. Uh, we are hosting a model on gas at the Reform Conference in November, which uh, we're very excited about. So we'll be, students are currently in the process of selecting countries to represent. They are preparing, um, you know, briefs and doing research to make sure that they can re represent those countries well. And in November, we'll be hosting this two-day event where we are, uh, you know, actually going through a process that will be similar to model on, or to ungas itself. And then in April, we have scheduled our national conference, our, our international conference, to coincide with ungas. Uh, we'll be bringing everyone to D.C. for three days of the best conference in all of drug policy reform, if you ask me, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and lots of other people. <laughs> and uh, so that's April 15th through 17th. And then we are um, chartering buses and taking as many people as are able to join us up to New York for protests um, and demonstrations in the city uh, immediately prior to uh, the UNGAS formally starting itself. It's going to be an amazing event, and I, I certainly hope that listeners will look into it, um, ssdp.org dash or slash rather SSDP 2016 is where you can find details. Thank you so much for letting us know about the, both of these amazing opportunities, Betty. I can't express how awesome it is. Um, I think that you've planned these two kind of um, conferences in conjunction with each other um, where you really provide training and skills uh, to students through the Model UN um, that they may not have gotten otherwise. And then, and then we're arranging for them to actually see UNGAS and how it how it unfolds um, in person um, and kind of on the same vein about um, practical skills for you know post-college life um, in the SSDP world pivoting back to Chris um, how did your time with SSDP influence how you became involved in the marijuana industry uh, well I mean it directly led to my involvement in the industry um, uh, you know uh, I didn't get involved in the marijuana industry necessarily because I was looking for a, you know an opportunity to, to get rich. Um, I, I saw it as a natural extension of um, uh, of, of what I was doing, what I've been doing as a reformer for the, the past you know, thirteen or so years. At that point, um, you know, it, it, it was it was working at SSDP in in those years in the late two thousands as as medical marijuana was really becoming more legitimate of an industry. Um, at, th at that point, really primarily in the Bay Area of California, um, Colorado was, was, was sort of barely in its infancy at that point. Um, and, you know, and I'd seen the impact that uh, places like, uh, uh, like Berkeley Patients Group and Harborside Health Center and, and, and Peace and Medicine at that, at that point uh, were having on, on helping change public perception around what, what cannabis distribution can look like. And, and it really occurred to me that um, that, that these models, particularly the re these retail models, uh, were having as much of an impact on, um, on, on changing public policy around, around marijuana prohibition as the work that we were doing as nonprofit advocates. Um, and, and it was this brand new industry and it was exciting. And so as I was leaving SSDP, um, you know, Steve D'Angelo and Harborside Health Center were, were donors uh, at SSDP when I was there, and they were starting up a new consulting business to help people replicate the model that had made Harborside so successful. Um, 
And so I, I moved, I left DC after uh, about 13 years in the city um, and moved out to California and helped start this company called Canby, uh, which was designed to provide essentially a, a, a high-end uh, operating model for new dispensary operators. Um, it's a little bit ahead of its time. Uh, ultimately, the company did, did kind of fail. Um, uh, it lasted a little under two years, but that, but that led to Forefront. I mean, it was really Forefront kind of emerged from the ashes of Canby and actually scooped up a lot of the talent and the intellectual property and assets that Canby had created and repurposed them. And so if it, if it wasn't for that experience and, and having been through a failed startup, um, you know, we wouldn't have been able to build a successful company um, uh, afterwards. You need to, you know, you take take some licks and and, uh, and and have some failures in order to in order to really to, to understand how to build a successful business. Um, but it, but it's still that you know that philosophy of showing people that cannabis can be distributed in a way that is highly professional and socially responsible and community focused. That you know nobody. Can, no, there, there's virtually nobody that can live in a town that has a, a well-run, well-regulated professional dispensary in their town, whether they're a patient or a consumer or not, and think that this is something disruptive or deviant or, or dangerous, right? It, you know, they may not, somebody may not drink, but they don't mind having a, a nice high-end liquor store in their, you know, in their town, in the commerce area of their, of their, you know, of, 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 of their city or their town, um, and so it just becomes a regular, normal part of life. And if we can show people that this is just, you know, a, a, just another kind of boring professional retail store, um, you can you, you can no longer demonize uh, uh, marijuana dealers or marijuana sales or marijuana users because it's right there in front of you. It's not being hidden in people's basements or being you know relegated to you know street corners in 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 you know neighborhoods that the you know the majority of the population is not going to. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's out in the open. It's in your face. It's done in a way that's professional. It looks like any other retail environment. And so that was. You know, that was my motivation for moving from the advocacy world to the industry. I thought it'd be really fun to do this through uh, through through the industry to, to harness the power of private enterprise um, and to bring people into the movement that otherwise never would be. And I think that's been one of the biggest benefits of the of the industry to the drug policy reform movement and particularly the marijuana reform movement is that there is a whole host of people who got involved in this initially just because of their bottom line, right? Because they saw it as an opportunity to get involved in a growth industry and make money. But once they're in it, even if their motivations coming in weren't necessarily, uh, you know, reform or reform oriented, um, even if they were just financial, you know, just financially driven, they have to become reformers, whether they like it or not. Um, because that, 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 that very much impacts their, their, their bottom line, right? If you, if you want to expand your business, you've got to support marijuana policy reform because you've got to legalize in more states to open new markets. Um, you want to fix the banking issues and the 280E issues and all of these, you know, all of these sort of relics of prohibition that make it really difficult to conduct business the way that anybody else would conduct business. And then you have vendors that do business with these folks that are that are now fighting i mean somebody you know a, a case that's going on right now the, you know, the 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 fourth corner credit union out of colorado which is attempting to get chartered as a credit union to serve the cannabis industry these are real bankers people who have experience in banking that probably never would have been involved in marijuana reform and now they're you know now they're engaged in a lawsuit uh with uh, you know with 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 the, with the fed uh to allow banking um or to allow or allow a credit union to be chartered to service the marijuana industry so we've brought in all of these people who you know, who, who otherwise probably never would have donated to organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy or the Marijuana Policy Project, Drug Policy Alliance, et cetera, um, or really spent any time working on this issue that, that now become 
advocates for reform. And I think that's been a, that's been a huge benefit for us as a movement and something that's only possible because of the emergence of this industry. And, and, and frankly, just to, 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 to wrap up this point, I also think it's important that we, that we have folks who are reform minded that serve in leadership positions in the industry. Um, you know, uh, like Troy Dayton and, 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 and both of you actually on the, you know, the host of this podcast I mean, you guys are becoming leaders in the industry, but you're rooted in reform. Um, and that's going to help keep us as an industry honest and, and keep us operating with the sort of the right, um, ethics and, and, and goals in mind. This is a, I mean, this is such a perfect answer. It's so inspiring to hear, you know, from longtime advocates. And I think it's so important for us to keep reminding young up and coming advocates that, you know, it seems like your policy work and your advocacy work hasn't necessarily taken a back seat now that you've transitioned to the private sector, but rather that it's informed how you run your business um, in this new industry. And then that's, you know, that's something we all aspire to um, as this new industry emerges and comes online. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do definitely agree that just being able to harness the power of private enterprise to push reform is really one of the major drivers that's been able to to speed it up so much in recent years. And I also just really love the the little point that you made about uh, essentially making marijuana boring. And uh, to me, that's just always one of the funniest things, but it's so true. And I remember there was a quote from... Uh, in the Netherlands, I forget if it was their minister of public health or it was a very high up government official. And people were asking about how they've had so much success with uh, marijuana reform there. And yet still there's uh, they've got much lower usage rates than we have here in the U.S. despite uh, much uh, looser laws. And he said, just we've managed to do the impossible here. We've made marijuana boring. And that's really the thing that can uh, bring a lot of those moderates on board rather than making it the, this, this fringe movement that it, that it was a few decades ago. Well, because if, if you can't see something, it's very easy to demonize it. But once it's in your face and it's just a normal part of society, you know, people, people can't demonize. They can't make it out to be something that it's not. It's right there for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so parallel with the, the gay rights movement, for example, of uh, the whole coming out movement and that being one of the things that really transformed it because people realized, oh, I actually know gay people. It's not just this easily demonizable other group that's, uh, you know, in the shadows because no one uh, wants to talk about it. And so that's really bringing this into the light has been so great. And uh, and so, Betty, your story is actually uh, interesting because it's kind of the opposite approach from Chris, since you're working first for for NCIA, which is a marijuana industry trade group for our listeners. And I mean, they are they do a lot of advocacy work, but it is still more on the industry side of things. Uh, but now you've switched over to working on the, the nonprofit pure advocacy side with SSDP. And so uh, what was it that made you uh, want to make that jump? And how do you think the, the two played into each other? Well, you know, Sam, I've actually been an advocate and activist uh, pretty much since I could walk. Um, I ran my first action when I was 13. I, you know, had my parents driving me into town to, uh, you know, write letters against apartheid when I was 14. I, um, I, the first time I ever asked my dad if I could be arrested at a protest at <laughs> 16. So, you know, there, the, it, it's been a Did you get long- arrested at the protest? Uh, no, my dad, my dad convinced me it was a bad idea. <laughs> so, and, and he was, my mom would have been super pissed. Um, that would have been far more, far worse punishment than, uh, than the rural, uh, the rural, uh, sheriff's office, I think. Um, so 
uh, you know, uh, and a lot of my background is in um, is in nonprofit um, in, in the nonprofit world. I worked for an aid service organization and museums and whatnot. So, my brief foray into the marijuana industry was actually kind of the the uh, unusual part of my career, and that and that was for a very specific purpose, like all of you know um the the marijuana industry the cannabis industry is a vector for reform and having the opportunity to in 2013 as the national conversation was developing in such a profound way around the cannabis industry uh, to really shape that um, and provide some training to folks who had never done media before and, and you know, shape the, the way that we would talk about education, the way that we would talk about accountability and responsibility and, and to take up a leading voice in creating that, um, that conversation was a really strong opportunity for me as an advocate to ensure that we were valuing the things that I thought um, and still do think are really important about the cannabis industry when it comes to all of these pieces that Chris was talking about. So SSDP was very much coming home for me, uh, back to my roots of uh, volunteer leadership, community organizing, advocacy, um, and a little bit of, of uh, shenanigans along with your civil disobedience. <laughs> so that's, um, but, you know, again, I think that the, all of the points that Chris has brought up about how um, you know SSDPers are really holding those values for the marijuana industry are very important points and, and uh, tremendously important to ensuring that um, we are building the right kind of industry that's going to further the goals of reform and create sustainable reforms that aren't going to see the kind of backlash that we might um, if we aren't very careful. Um, but again, but also, uh, you know, another thing that Chris mentioned while he was talking was about the the failures um, of of Canby leading to the the great success of Forefront. And one of the really neat things about what we do at SSDP is teach young people how to fail forward, perhaps for the first time in their lives. You know, they 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 can go out and do bold, daring things and find out whether or not their risk analysis was appropriate and is there, you know, is this thing where they've uh, fallen down going to be a lesson or is it going to be a stumbling block and um, and so really uh, that, you know, that's one of, I think, the most important pieces of, of training that happens with an SSDP chapter member. And so in in looking at all of how closely entwined advocacy and activism is with the marijuana industry um we what 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 do you guys see as like has the marijuana industry succeeded in supporting marijuana the marijuana reform movement i know this is something that we all hold as the ideal i think we all strongly believe that if you're part of the industry you are an advocate you have to and that's not that's not you know a that's not an option. We just have to support this this industry continuing to build. Um, but do you think current players within the marijuana industry are doing enough? Is there more they can do, especially in the broader uh, drug policy reform realm? Um, 
And especially when we think about, um, you know, those demographics that have been most harmed by the current war on drugs, such as minority communities, which are disproportionately targeted by these policies, are we doing enough to address the harms of the war on drug instead of just running away with the profits, basically? Um, and that, that's a question for either Betty or Chris. <laughs> I think sure. that Chris and I both have some pretty strong feelings on this one. Um, so to start us off, Betty. Yeah. Um, I will say that, that there are uh, members of the industry who really get it um, deeply and fundamentally understand how important their role is um, when it comes to developing something that we can point to as better than prohibition. And some of them don't. Um, so on the responsibility, accountability, transparency side, um, you know, that sometimes that's a, a piece where we have to really do a lot of education with new players, especially uh, who are coming in because they see, you know, an, um, an economic opportunity. And but generally folks are pretty receptive to to learning about that. And as they meet more SSD peers, they certainly come on board. Um, and and, uh, and in terms of providing financial support to the reform uh, organizations, I think that that story is getting a little bit better too. Um, you know, I, I think that that folks are recognizing that you know we aren't here because we want to build an industry that we are going to profit from. We're here because we see an injustice, and this industry is a byproduct. Um, you know, and. and uh, and it is positive in many ways, but but for the most part, folks who are engaged in marijuana policy reform are, are not here because we want to build something. Um, so you know, an, an industry. We're here for a lot of other reasons, um, and and we need the support of of those marijuana uh, entrepreneurs uh, in order to to make sure that we can keep moving this this reform forward. Now, as to your question about writing the injustices of the drug war. Um, that has been one of the most disappointing things for me about the ways that regulation has developed, the ways mm. that um, some individual, um, though not many, uh, entrepreneurs have, have set their priorities, and uh, the ways that, when it comes to you know, the ways that marijuana is being regulated and, and the specifics around um, the shape that these economic opportunities are taking in specific communities is really um, tremendously disappointing. We're leaving people behind and the drug war, you know, one of the, the most insidious impacts of the drug war, of course, is the way that it has economically devastated communities, um, creating these um, is where there are no job opportunities except to deal drugs, where there are, um, you know, f where uh, the such a, an enormous percentage of individuals living in these communities have been imprisoned because of drug-related crimes and are no longer employable. And, you know, the, the New Jim Crow, of course, is the, the Bible when it comes to learning about this. Uh, the book by Michelle Alexander is the, kind of the Bible when it comes to learning about how these impacts have been. Uh, but just a few days ago, there was a great piece on what are referred to as million-dollar blocks in Chicago, um, these blocks where 
we we have spent a million dollars incarcerating people who live on these blocks instead of creating better community mm-hmm. better opportunities for them. So the drug war has had all of these just horrifying impacts on communities that are now being left out mm-hmm. of economic opportunities in. Um, you know, as they're developing in the marijuana industry and as these regulations are developing, the barriers to entry for cultivation, um, processing, or retail are extremely high. And I understand certainly that there's a need for high levels of investment in security and, um, you know, and ensuring that you're building out a responsible business. But the room for mom and pop style businesses just hasn't really been explored in the way that it should be. The room for apprenticeships and internships and other um, it paid internships, very specifically, um, and, and other routes by which we lift people up economically who are, are not economically advantaged mm-hmm. just aren't being developed in mm-hmm. the marijuana industry. And it's tremendously disappointing. And then you see, you know, in addition, in some states, licensing for even just you know, the lowest level employees restricted only to people who have never had a drug felony. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. We need to Mm -hmm. fix these problems as we're looking at developing regulations in new states that are coming on board. Mm -hmm. I do appreciate Maryland, which has taken the very first of, you know, few steps towards um, righting some of these wrongs by specifically encouraging um, participation from minority uh, businesses in the new industry, but some of the other barriers to entry that you mentioned, the prohibitive costs associated uh, with entering the industry um, still exist, unfortunately. So, Chris, I want to give you a chance, and I, I apologize for asking one of the most important questions I think that we've discussed uh, today at the right at the end of the show, but if you have a quick answer to give us, um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this, too. No, that's great. I mean, look, I, I think the the industry still has a long way to go in terms of uh, in terms of legitimately supporting the movement, um, but I you know as I mentioned earlier, I, I do think that the industry is starting to play a real role there. I mean, we've seen folks, uh, and I know I'll, 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 I'll single out people like you know James Sladek, um, who was one of the founders of Open Vape, is now with with Bang uh, Bang Chocolates, and, and somebody like Kip, uh, 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 Trip Kieber from Dixie Elixirs, one of the most successful companies out of Colorado. You know, these folks have given a lot of money to reform. Um, and, and they would probably be the first to tell you that they got into this because they were motivated by money, not by reform. Um, and as they got into it, you know, they became reformers to the point where, I mean, uh, James serves on the Marijuana Policy Project Board of Directors um, and, and you know, gives a lot of money every year. And, you know, groups like the Arcview Group, for example, which is run by, you know, SSDP alum Troy, Troy Dayton, um, uh, every, every, every conference that they have, which are conferences where investors get, uh, get, get pitched by, by companies uh, to, to, for investment, um, they have a they have a section every you know at every at every forum or every conference which is held every three months where a nonprofit gets to get up and pitch and uh, and and raise money from these room this room full of cannabis investors. So there's been you know there's been some real some real movement there, but you know there are plenty of freeloaders, and I think that's just that's going to be the case. And unfortunately, we just kind of have to live with that. There are just some people that you know aren't necessarily going to donate because they just don't care that much. They're only in it for the bottom line. Even those people are still. Uh, you know, they're still supporting reform in some ways because just by going to work and running one of these businesses, they're they're engaged in an act of civil disobedience, um, and and you know, just just doing this while it's still federally illegal in in many ways is still contributing to the cause. But they need to do more. 
you know, all of that said, though, I, I, being on the industry side now and having been on the reform side so, so for so long, you know, I see things a little bit differently and just that I have a different understanding of business and how business works that I think a lot of my colleagues in the nonprofit world uh, don't 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 really quite understand because they've never been in the business world. And in particular, it's that most of these marijuana businesses, despite the media reports and the stories that you see about you know, marijuana being the new green rush and gold rush and millions of dollars and all of that, the reality is that virtually every business in this industry right now is still in startup mode. Even those that are doing well, they're still reinvesting the money that they're making into growing their businesses. Like we don't have a, a you know an Anheuser Busch or a Kraft or you know some of the you know major company that has millions of dollars of discretionary discretionary money that they can spend on you know, on, on charity or even on advertising. This is all money that's going back into building infrastructure and expanding businesses. And so we just don't have that as an industry yet. The ability for businesses to kick off really large amounts of money. And I think that's something that that. For some of some of my friends on the reform side who spent all of their their, their careers in nonprofits, it's that that's kind of hard to really grasp because they see the dollar figures that are flowing through the businesses, not realizing that you know they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors and their shareholders to not spend money on things unrelated to the business when the business is still in debt or still or still growing. Um, I, know, I mean, as far as the diversity issue, I, I don't think I can say it any better than Betty did. Um, she hit it absolutely on the head. We've not done nearly enough. And unfortunately, a lot of that is really a product of uh, the types of laws and regulations that are being passed that actually prohibit uh, folks with drug convictions and, and, and sort of the folks from the most marginalized and most targeted communities from participating in this industry. And, and that's something that we really need to keep a close eye on, and particularly as policy advocates, to make sure that we're not perpetuating this and, and leading to an industry that excludes the people who were the biggest victims of the of, of marijuana prohibition. You know, Chris, yeah, you bring up you bring up some really good points here. Um, and, and one thing that I want to specifically respond to is the the um, the perception of tremendous amounts of money being made in the industry. And that's something that's been very frustrating for not only for us in uh, on the nonprofit side and those of us who are trying to to um, you know, change policy, but also I know for for a lot of those people who are in that mom and pop phase, um, there's a, a a media tendency to really uh, glamorize this life, and people want to look to people who are experiencing great uh, monetary success, um, and it creates a perception that is definitely off base from reality. But um, as these companies are starting up, we also recognize that it's. Uh, important to figure out how you want to build your business. And so we actually offer resources to uh, entrepreneurs and startups on how to uh, build a business that is um, uh, interested in and holds as a strong value corporate philanthropy so that there are more arc views and forefronts and, uh, and harbor sides who are really paying a lot of attention to the impacts that they have in the world. Yeah, I think that is such a good point to make. And yeah. also it is exciting that uh, since part of the problem is just that the industry isn't mature yet. And so since there are so many in startup mode, it's exciting that, you know, in uh, just a few years, once those get a lot more established, hoping there, hopefully there will be a lot more, uh, a lot more support for the nonprofit side of things. And uh, so we're coming up on the end of our time now, but we always like to, uh, 
to wrap up our interviews with just a call to action. And so we just because on this podcast, we think it is so important for people to to learn about uh, the broader war on drugs and drug policy and the science of things. But it really it really doesn't matter too much if you're not actually doing anything about it and actually trying to bring about some positive change. And so uh, if each of you would just like to say one thing that uh, you would encourage listeners to do once they once we, they wrap up listening to this episode that they could uh, move the ball forward just a little bit in reform. Sure, I'll start, and I'll probably steal some of Betty's thunder here. But um, you know, given given the makeup of the of the panel here today, I'd say you know if you if you're a student, join or start an SSDP chapter. Uh, there's there's nothing better that you can do to move to move the ball forward as a as a student than getting involved with SSDP. And if you're a student and you're interested at all in eventually working in the industry or working in the movement professionally, definitely get involved or start an SSDP chapter. There's no better recruiting source for, for both the industry and the movement than Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And if you're not a student, uh, please consider donating to SSDP. Um, this is the student movement to end the war on drugs. It's where I came out of. It's, you know, it's the organization Betty's running. It's where you know, Sam and, and, and Rochelle both came out of the organization. I think virtually all of your guests to date have come out of SSDP. Um, <laughs> we may uh, have a little bias. <laughs> well, but, but there's, but there's reason for that, right? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, these are the, these are the best and brightest to, uh, in, in the, in the movement and, and in the industry today. Um, so anything you could do to support this, this organization is, is just leading to a brighter future um, for the industry, a brighter future for the movement. And, uh, and, and from what we see here, a brighter future for podcasting. Chris. Uh, yeah. You stole my thunder a little bit, but that's all right. Um, I, of course, echo everything that, that Chris has to say. I was actually at a, an event last night, um, an industry event hosted by a different organization, and someone said to me, man, there are a lot of USSDPers here. And mm-hmm. I looked around and like, like one out of every five people in the room was an SSDP student or alumni member, which is pretty much uh, you know par for the course at a lot of these events. So. Um, Yes, uh, everything that Chris said, but also uh, something a little bit lower, um, uh, a slightly lower level of commitment for a secondary call to action. We're in the August recess right now, which means that your elected officials are home um, and taking meetings in their home offices. I hope that you will look up the uh, the contact information for your uh, for your elected officials, your federal elected officials, um, and make an appointment. Go in and talk to them about the importance of things like amending the Rave Act, and ensuring that um, that you know we are are doing our best to right some of the wrongs of the drug war, including supporting a lot of the marijuana-related bills that are currently um, in front of Congress, and a lot of the the criminal justice reform bills that that are uh, coming up here. Um, this is a really good opportunity to demonstrate that you care a great deal about this issue, and uh, you'd be surprised how impactful a single meeting can be. Not very many people go and meet with their electeds, and, and if you do so, your voice will certainly be heard. Absolutely. Yeah, when it comes to talking with your representatives, it is definitely just that showing up is half the battle because so few people actually do get engaged, so that kind of thing is so incredibly important. And. Uh, all right, so th- that is the the end of our time here, and just want to say thank you again so much for coming on for a roundtable discussion. Uh, again, for our listeners, this has been Chris Crane of Forefront Ventures and Betty Aldworth of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. So thank you again so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening to episode 6 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Chris Crane and Betty Aldworth once again for joining us for the discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for a discussion I'm really excited for, where we're going to be talking with Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, aka Dread Pirate Roberts, who was recently sentenced to life in prison for his role in creating the Silk Road online marketplace. We'll also be joined by Megan Ralston, former harm reduction manager at the Drug Policy Alliance, who has written extensively on Silk Road and the case. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show and who's behind it, links to our guests and their organizations, and more. We hope you tune in next week, and always remember, stay sensible. Stay sensible.